Good morning and welcome to episode 582 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Perspectives presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. Hi. It's How are you? Okay. Good. Yeah. It's a listener email show. We're going to enter a few emails. We will do a Play Index segment, but before we do... We have a guest for the first segment of the show. He is Rob Arthur of Baseball Prospectus, whom we've had on before. You may remember him as the Bat Crack Man. And he wrote <laughs> something that is relevant to a topic we discussed twice last week, the Chase Headley-Pablo Sandoval value gap and why teams were rumored to be and, and actually were willing to pay so much for Sandoval and are rumored to be willing to pay much less for Headley. And we talked about the difference between them and whether there's anything we're missing. And Rob wrote something that might be a potential explanation. He wrote it for Fox Sports and we have him on to talk about it. Hey, Rob. Hey, how are you? Okay. So we know that Sandoval is a strange hitter, that he is a bad ball hitter, that he will swing at things in the dirt. He will swing at things above his head and often he will hit those things, which is the even more fun part of Sandoval. But you did some research and it turns out that that is not the only way in which Sandoval is unique. So explain what you did. Sure. Uh, So I was intrigued by this property of Sandoval, and I thought it might somehow make him a steadier hitter, one who is less sensitive to the competition that he was facing. And um, people have argued this before based on like playoff statistics and things like that, but that's it's really hard to do any kind of rigorous sabermetrics on the small sample of the playoffs. So I was trying to think of a way to get around that issue, and I, I uh, had the idea of looking at uh, looking at it on an individual pitch by pitch basis instead of uh, at the at bat level. Mm-hmm. So the idea was to uh, sort of take every pitch that's thrown to every hitter and then model how well the hitter should do against that pitch based on how hard that pitch is to hit, based on essentially three properties: the velocity of the pitch, where it is, and how it breaks, how hard it breaks in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I went ahead and, and made uh, made this model, and then I looked at how well the model predicted the hitter's results for each hitter in MLB. And I found that uh, Sandoval uh, had this unique ability um, that he the model couldn't predict what he would do with the pitch at all. So he could hit a pitch that was thrown very hard to the edge of the strike zone, you know, for a home run, whereas most hitters would have a lot of trouble with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you you mentioned that. For 90% of hitters, they get worse. Their results get worse as pitches get nastier, whether it's the location or the speed or the break. They are not as able to handle more difficult pitches, which makes perfect sense. But that for this small minority, that is not the case. And so for Sandoval, you're theorizing then that it kind of doesn't matter who he's facing. So it doesn't matter whether it's it's a game in August and he's facing a fifth starter on another team or he's facing an ace or something. I mean, he would still be 
worse against some pitchers, presumably, at least based on headedness, but he is theoretically less susceptible to good pitching. So that seems like a valuable skill. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think that good pitchers are going to be the people who throw these good pitches most often, then um, he should be able to do better against them on average than um, than your average hitter, who or your sort of regular hitter, uh, who should suffer when he's trying to face a, a really nasty pitch. Uh-huh. And who are other hitters who have this Sandoval skill, and where does Headley rank on this spectrum? There's very few hitters that have it consistently, um, so... He, so it, it tends to fluctuate a lot year to year. Um, he's one of uh, maybe five or ten that had uh, consecutive years of sort of not uh, not uh, being insensitive to the quality of the pitch, essentially. Uh, so another hitter like him is Elvis Andrus. Um, another hitter is Ike Davis. Uh, so by and large, not very good hitters, except Pablo Sandoval. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned and so Chase, and- Andrelton Simmons, who was one of the worst hitters in baseball last year. Right. And that kind of makes sense because um, basically what this is saying is that hitters not reacting to uh, a meatball down the middle, like you know a softly thrown pitch in the center of the plate, uh, the way that they should be. They're not hitting it any harder than they hit a really tough pitch. So it makes sense that for the majority of hitters, this is going to be a, a negative trait. This is going to be linked to to hitters that aren't so good on average. Um, so, so like I said, Sandoval is, is unique in this. Um, Headley is basically middle of the pack. Uh, he, he shows correlations um, in both years that are significant. So he's not really anything special in regards to this trait. This is actually really interesting to me too because I wrote a piece a uh, couple, maybe a year or two ago about how Sandoval's uh, BABIP is basically exactly the same when he swings at pitches outside the strike zone is when he sing, swings at pitches inside the strike zone, which was in, you know, I sort of wrote it as a curiosity um, on McCovey Chronicles, actually. Uh, I think. Maybe I yeah. didn't. Uh, but I was it was just sort of like kind of this weird, crazy thing about Sandoval. It didn't occur to me in any way that that would be like a skill, that that would be applicable to anything. I mean, we know what his overall numbers were. I didn't think it made him particularly better or particularly worse. And this suggests that it might actually make him in a way better. Um, so, but the question maybe might be um, that I might have is how sure are we that pitches in the postseason are harder? Um, I guess they're probably more likely to be better in the, the sense that it's better pitchers throwing them. Um, but are, uh, is it a significant difference in October in terms of uh, velocity, where we think that this might actually be a, a you know a big explanatory factor in his postseason success, or is it still probably only enough to explain like you know some small portion of his postseason numbers at best? Would you guess? So I think it's probably only a small portion. Um, I mean, when you're dealing with the tiny sample of the playoffs, the majority of you know the difference between a, a hitter's uh, career seasonal line and the playoff is going to be luck. But uh, it could be a small input into it. Um, so I, I wrote in the piece that the uh, average fastball velocity increases by about a mile an hour between the postseason and the regular season. So you're, you're seeing hitters that are, on average, throwing faster. Um, I didn't look at the other characteristics like the location or the break, but I would also expect those to be 
um, on average, a little bit different between the regular season and the postseason. And we saw some really dominant uh, pitching performances this postseason, for instance, by uh, Madison Bumgarner that would tend to kind of anecdotally reinforce that perception. So I don't expect a precise answer to this question, but if you had, say, Sandoval and you had player B who has the same projection overall, he's an equally good hitter and an equally good fielder. In every respect, he's as good as Sandoval, except that he doesn't have this ability to hit good pitching particularly well. And you're a team that expects to make the playoffs like the Red Sox presumably do. How much more would you be willing to pay? Just say same same number of years or whatever, but but average annual value for Sandoval than player B who who can't hit good pitching particularly well. This is a really tough question, and you you touched on one of the reasons already, which is that the value would be a lot different uh, to a sort of perennial postseason contender versus a team that's not uh, that's not so good. Um, assuming that you are a uh, perennial postseason contender like the Red Sox or the Yankees or one of those other good teams. I mean, it's it's really tough to tell, but maybe like uh, a few million uh, additionally a year. Mm-hmm. The thing is that it's a very inconsistent skill, um, so it changes a lot year to year. Uh, Sandoval in particular seems to be the rare hitter who consistently shows this between years. Um, and so you know, maybe you treat that a little bit differently, but you still regress it to the mean a lot because it doesn't seem like something that um, that stays very consistent. So, uh huh. And and I guess not there's very much. no way to really project what impact this might have on his aging progression, for instance, because he's the only guy who does it. So so we don't know. Yeah, yeah, and it, you could you know potentially make an argument that it's going to be bad. Um, he he's maybe he's not gaining plate discipline as much uh, as older hitters usually do or something like that. So it could have negative effects as well in terms of aging. And I also, I wonder how much this, I mean, the, we don't know how much, for instance, Sandoval's postseason success is already a factor. We'll never really know whether it's already a factor. It's conceivable that, um, in fact, uh, this suggests that he should be paid a little bit more than his regular season stats would be worth. Uh, and yet it's also conceivable that he should be paid a little less than he's already getting paid because, for all we know, front offices are already somehow reacting to the postseason success in a emotional, perhaps slightly less than rational, but perhaps slightly more rational than we gave them credit for way. Yeah, that's, that's certainly true. So it might already be priced in. Yeah. Aren't you glad that I... Made sure to get that in. (laughs) 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 All right. So I don't know if this explains the discrepancy between Sandoval and Headley, but maybe it gets us closer to figuring it out. It's an interesting thing about Sandoval regardless and an interesting article, which we will link in the podcast post at BP and in the Facebook group. You should just go read Rob. He's one of our favorite baseball writers and and follow him on Twitter at no little plans underscores between no and little and little and plans. And uh, thanks for coming on, Rob. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Rob. I have no non-revelatory rumors to pass on today, although there was one that did reveal something from Chris Cotillo, who revealed via a source 
that Matt Albers is rehabbing and plans to throw a bullpen for teams in February before signing during spring training. So that's the Matt Albers news. No Ryan Webb news to report. No Ryan Webb news. Eric uh, Hartman, by the way, reminded me that we never did mention the uh, the Nick Markakis MVP news, which oh, was that right. Nick Markakis uh, did not get an MVP vote. It was the first thing that I looked for. Well, I I guess that's a lie. Uh, it was the second thing I looked for. Yes, uh, you were looking to see whether Chase Utley got an MVP vote. Exactly, and uh, he did not. And uh, the second thing I looked for was to see if Nick Markakis did. He also did not, uh, despite a gold glove and an above-average uh, OPS on a division-winning team. So mm-hmm. that's good news. So he remains, what, what the best player what? Who, ever? Who, <laughs> I don't even remember. Why are we following this story? <laughs> he he has the he has a I would say a strong chance of becoming the best player ever to not make an All Star team or get a single MVP vote. And uh, there are at the top there. It's a, there are a couple of people who can contend for this. I I think that probably the best answer right now is Mark Ellis, uh, who has 33 career war. Markakis is at 24 career war, I believe, right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, 25 career war, and he's only 30 years old. So uh, even as a, you know, even if he has a couple more seasons as an average player and then a couple more seasons as a bench player, he's got a real chance at passing Ellis. And I think he passes the sniff test more than Mark Ellis does. I mean, the dude had a seven-win season. <laughs> That's crazy, yeah. A seven-win season, and he didn't get a single MVP vote hmm. for that seven-win season. And he's had a four-win season. I mean, he's had multiple seasons better than, like, Ryan Howard's, like, top three finishes have, <laughs> you know, have been. So, and to not even get a single 10th place vote, I don't know. Is, uh, it, do you have any sense of whether Nick Markakis is a... Uh, a likable guy, the kind of guy that a writer will throw a 10th place vote to. I guess if he were going to throw, if he were going to get a 10th place loyalty vote, you know, hometown vote, uh, it probably would have been in Baltimore where he's uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's he's been brought up from infancy. And so the, if he changes teams, that probably helps my, my yeah, case. Yeah, you're right. He was robbed. Okay. He was, although I guess I don't necessarily want him going to a team that's likely to be very good no Mm -hmm. i don't care (laughs) it's not even the first thing you checked when the results came out it was only the second thing the second chris medlin by the way non-tendered and Mm -hmm. uh as you know chris medlin is uh my perennial favorite player have you submitted a bid i'm scraping together my resources Uh uh-huh been, uh, I, I would say that uh, in the uh, language of non-revelatory, non, non-revelatory, <laughs> in the in the language of non-revelatory tweets, I would say that I'm considering all my options, but I haven't decided whether to make a move. Mm-hmm. Have you established contact? I have not. Uh, I have not. Es- I, I would say that I have neither established nor not established contact. <laughs> okay. We'll keep us posted. All right, so we will answer a few emails. This one comes from Jason in Miami, and he says, given the current MLB climate where teams in major markets like the Red Sox have money to burn with only a finite number of options to spend it on, 
without giving away hordes of precious future value in prospects. And teams like the A's are so constrained budgetarily, despite consistently being in contention, that they have to jettison their best players year after year, even when said players are still earning relatively modest salaries. Why is it that you don't see attempts by teams such as Boston to lure teams like Oakland into dealing their next-in-line-to-go talent to them by not offering the usual package of prospects and -and up-and-comers, but rather by assuming most, if not all, of the remaining money of current above-average major leaguers that may not be essential to the current lineup. For example, while Shane Victorino at $13 million is almost certainly a losing money proposition in 2015, how much would Shane Victorino be worth to Oakland this year if his contract this year were free? I know it's well within the rules as teams eat money on players with bad contracts all the time, and Victorino might not be the ideal poster boy for my point, but with the current market so valuing top-tier young talent and big league players on club-friendly deals, why is it that a team that can afford to eat $10 bucks not exploiting this advantage by simply creating great contracts out of average or bad ones by assuming the majority of the balance themselves? I think it's... uh... It's an interesting question. I mean, it does seem like there have been instances where it would make sense that, uh, so to the point that it's surprising that there aren't really a lot of examples of it happening. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, w- uh, so for instance, and I hesitate to bring this up because it's one of the low points of my career, and really one of the low points of your career, because you were my editor and you passed <laughs> off on this, uh-huh. and because we both benefited from the massive insanity of page views that it got. But when I wrote my John Carlos Stanton trade, uh, trade mock trade, fake trade, hypothetical trade suggestions piece, remember that one? Uh-huh. Uh, one of them w- uh, involved Alex Rodriguez and the Yankees basically using his sort of talent uh, to get something back. It wasn't you know straight up or anything. It was it, it might have been straight up. They were all stupid. Uh, I don't remember what it was. The point is that. Um, uh, for instance, the Yankees could have traded a Rod, uh, taken his whole uh, his whole salary, and then you know probably gotten something out of him. Like that was the concept behind that trade uh, proposal. Um, and so it's surprising that there haven't been some of those. Like there are players who get traded and their contract is paid for by their old team, but usually out of necessity, not as a way of sort of sweetening the deal. Um, but I think the, so anyway, what, what I'm saying is that it's surprising that it hasn't happened at all, but I think the reason that it rarely happens is just that the teams that are capable of doing this, like he mentions the Red Sox, the teams that are capable of absorbing payroll like this are the teams that want the players. They're the teams Mm -hmm. that have the money to pay them, that are competing, that see a player like Shane Victorino, uh, as crucial surplus in their pennant push. Um, and those teams are kind of in uh, hoarding mode. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're trying to get any talent they can possibly get their hands on. Um, so uh, it just doesn't a lot of times make sense for them to do anything that would weaken them. And so they're always trying to trade from the position, uh, trade out of their resources uh, that wouldn't weaken them. Yeah, I think it's a pretty small subset of guys who fall into this group. It's yeah. it's guys who are making a lot of money and are not worth that money or, or there's no surplus value after you pay them. And yet they're also still pretty good players that a team would want. 
and yet <laughs> they're not really wanted by their current team who has uh, a better option at the same position. So, yeah, there's <laughs> there aren't that many cases where that is true, but yeah. but maybe the Red Sox right now is is a pretty good example. So this yeah. email was perfectly crafted <laughs> to get Shane Victorino in it, but it's hard to think of another situation like in all of baseball where you like it's hard to swap in another team and another player other than Red Sox and Shane Victorino. And that just goes to show how how rare it is that a player that a team uh, capable of paying a player like Shane Victorino would want to trade a player like Shane Victorino to a team that can't afford to pay Shane Victorino. But yeah, mm -hmm. it makes sense. It'd be interesting to see if the Red Sox do something like that because it, it does seem like, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe there's, uh, I don't know that teams are necessarily creative enough with their money. It's like uh, they, they have their money, they sign players when they can, but I feel like there's like a second level of using your money that we haven't really seen, and this is an example of that. But it right, like we said, it's hard to find the situation where it works perfectly. Mm -hmm. All right. This question comes from Vinit. He says, in Monday's episode, Ben mentioned transactional losses that the A's have had over the years in all their trades. It's hard to measure them. However, if you think of signing a free agent who has rejected a qualifying offer as a trade, there is a quantifiable loss since the incoming pick is worth considerably less than the outgoing one. And his questions are, why are teams okay with that loss? Why wouldn't the teams losing the free agent be better off signing the player to an extension earlier, as early as required, to circumvent sign-and-trade rules and then trading him? And then finally, are prospects valued more than draft picks because there is a name or face attached, i.e. the George Carlin syndrome of my shit is stuff and your stuff is shit? Explicit tag. Is that the first time you've ever sworn? <laughs> um, I think it is because... Maybe. I don't know. You tricked me into swearing once. Yeah. But I think that that's the first time you ever have. Could be. 582 <laughs> episodes to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't even swear in G-Chat, though. No. Never. Ever, ever. Not really. But if someone sends me an email <laughs> with, with some <laughs> stuff right. in it, I'll read it. I never get the sense that you're uncomfortable with it. You just yeah, never, just never ever... became part of my vocabulary somehow. Uh, Vinit, by the way, good emailer. Like, yes, excellent not, emailer. Not enough talk about Vinit. <laughs> Vinits are always, they're always gamers. Uh -huh. Um, I, we kind of mentioned this with the Kadire move, didn't we? Where, like, it, it's sort of interesting how the Mets give up, like, the 17th pick or whatever, and the Rockies get, like, the 36th pick, mm -hmm. and it's odd that, I mean, that seems like a big enough gap in value that you would think that two teams would value Kadire more or less within a, a, a range that's narrower than that gap. Yeah. And and I, they don't. And I always I always do find find that a little bit interesting. It's also the case where, like for instance, um, I don't know that it'll be the case this year, but we've seen instances where teams wouldn't sign free agents because of the compensation pick uh, that they would have to give up. But you would think that there would be some team that's already given away their compensation pick and maybe their second round pick too and would look at it as, well, you know, it's only a third round pick. So you basically have two situations where one team is giving up a third round pick and another team is maybe giving up the 11th overall pick. And that seems like a huge enough value that it would ha the free agent would have to go 
to the team giving up the third round pick, and yet they don't, which always strikes me as slightly interesting and which always is a good reminder that um, these trade, uh, these free agent signings are usually not decided on the margins so small as we're assessing them. Mm-hmm. All right, what was the question? <laughs> um, well, that was kind of the question. Why are teams okay with this loss? It was one of the questions. And, and yeah, maybe, maybe there's something to the idea that actual players are valued more than draft picks, or at least that teams are more willing to, or less willing to lose a guy. Because once you draft a guy, your own reputation is sort of at stake. You have picked this guy, you've made a bet that he's going to be a worthwhile player. And so you have some stake in his success. And you also maybe got to know the guy and have sunk some resources, some player development and coaching hours and effort and nutrition dollars into him. And maybe all of that makes you less willing to trade an actual player than you are to trade a draft pick who will become a player someday. I don't know what what the magnitude of that effect is, but maybe there's something to it. You'd think there would also be the opposite effect, though, where you draft a guy thinking he's, you know, some some version of a player, and then he shows up and you live with him for six months, and he's not that guy. You sort of mm-hmm. realize, oh, he's, you know, he, to to use an analogy, uh, you know, he leaves his, you know, like he leaves big toothpaste stains in the sink or whatever <laughs> the case may be. And you're just sort of like disappointed because you had this idealized version of the guy that you when you married him, and then you know the, as as you spend time with him, you realize that the idealized version of him is not the the one that is real. And and 29 other teams might still be able to maintain that idealized version of him, but you can't. And so uh, I think you're right. I think that the uh, that that the tendency to love your guys is stronger than the tendency to be disappointed by your guys mm-hmm. um, but I'm I'm not sure why that is I don't know that it has to be I guess maybe maybe you have to you know it might just be that you have to be relentlessly optimistic to be a successful player development department you have uh-huh. to accept that these guys are all like badly flawed and that you're waiting for the five years of various um, progress to uh, to get him to where you need him to be, and if you start getting disappointed by the things he can't do, you'll never get anybody to high A. And so maybe there's a bias to picking player development directors um, that leads to relentlessly optimistic and energetic guys, like our friend Gabe Kapler, who is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you get the feeling that if you were around Gabe Kapler, you would feel infinitely better about yourself because he is such a positive guy. Uh, and, and sees the good and everything. Maybe that's what it has to be in player development. Maybe the maybe the. I wonder. I would love to. In fact, if I were ever an insider, like if I were ever the kind of journalist who was like a true insider, mm-hmm. and I wanted to do a you know a big project, it might be uh, personality portraits of scouting directors versus player development directors because they have to have completely different skills, right? For just that reason. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. I, when when I was at scout school, I remember they used to talk about how we should focus on what the player can do instead of what the player can't do, 
which you could kind of take it the other way. You could say focus on what he can't do, but they chose to emphasize the can-do portion when telling us how to write up reports on players that we should focus on their abilities rather than their weaknesses. So maybe there's some of that in both camps. Yeah. Mm. Could be. I don't know. Why do you feel the way you do about Chris Medlin and Sergio Santos? I don't know, man. I'm looking at this tweet right now from the Dodgers, and it's a picture of Dodger Stadium that's uh, drenched in rain, and the tweet is, beautiful as ever, wither the weather, and then a hashtag, rain in LA. (laughs) And one of the replies is, just says, what? In Spanish, Spanish, please. Which is a reply in English. And why? why? Why does it need to be in Spanish? Why would there be an expectation it would be in Spanish, please? There should be a there should be a second Dodgers Twitter account in Espanol. This guy who Maybe there asked, is. this guy who asked for it to be in Spanish, all of his tweets are in English. <laughs> so what is he asking for? He's just considerate. Anyway, I don't think wither is the appropriate word there. I yeah. I don't think wither actually makes any sense there. Maybe yeah, no, I don't I don't think so. Okay. Play index? Sure. Play index. Hmm. Um so I'm stealing this from listener Paul, uh, who asked this question. Hey, Ben and Sam, while traveling through a baseball reference wormhole, I came across Pat Mahomes' 1994 season in which he pitched 120 innings with a 103 ERA+, plus, which is to say it was better than average when adjusted for league and park, and a 6.21 FIP, which is to say that he should have had an ERA around 6.21. This seems like an insanely lucky season. I was wondering what starting pitcher has had the luckiest season or who had the largest gap in these two stats. Thanks. So um, I wasn't sure exactly how I wanted to tackle this because, like, for one thing, FIP is not park or era adjusted. So a guy who has a high FIP, a guy could have a a 5.6 FIP in 2000 Colorado and have a 100 ERA plus that had no luck at all. It could just be that, like, that's what Colorado was adjusted. Mm-hmm. And so at first I just looked to see who had the um, the biggest multiplier, I guess, of FIP to ERA plus. And um, I didn't bother with the adjustments or anything like that. And uh, the answer is that Pat Mahomes is actually a really good answer. Like, he is probably one of the two best answers if you're setting a any reasonable innings pitched limit um he and dwight gooden are the only two players with at least 50 innings and a fip that is well this is this is complicating uh things to say this but so i did a multiplier of 0.06 so a fip that was 0.06 or higher times era plus which is, because of the decimal points, that's not very intuitive, but basically just think of it as being like roughly six times the ERA plus, or a FIP that's roughly six times as high as the ERA plus if you took the decimals out of it. So anyway, Paul, uh, Pat Mahomes and Dwight Gooden in 2000, both of those are right in the middle of the, uh, the offensive era. Uh, Gooden struck out 55, walked 44, and allowed 23 homers in 100 innings. Mm. It's just such a brutal season. And really, Dwight Gooden, Man, like, if you ever, like, look at for a great pitcher uh, to see how he rates 
you know, through the age of 27 or through the age of 25 or through the age of 29. Dwight Gooden is always at the top. It's always like Dwight Gooden, Burt Blylevin, uh, maybe Frank Tanana if you're young enough. Mm-hmm. Kershaw is always up there. But Dwight Gooden is like always on the on top. And then right around age 20, what, seven was it that he gave up the three home runs to Tuffy Rhodes and was never good again? Mm-hmm. It's incredible how far he fell. Uh, with like a bunch of ERAs over six, he had four, three seasons, I think, with ERAs over six. Uh, <laughs> you get a long leash when you start your career the way he did. And then, and so then, this season was actually one of his, I guess, better late seasons. But, but even still, I don't know that even this one quite captures what Paul was asking because it was two thousand. Uh, he was pitching in hitters' ballparks. And he had a 4.71 ERA. So the 6.28 FIP and the 4.71 ERA, there's a little bit of a clash, but it's not like super massive. Um, Ryan Franklin has a good one because Ryan Franklin had a 3.57 ERA, and the 3.57 ERA looks pretty good. Uh, he had a 121 ERA plus. Oh, yeah, the, by, uh, just to explain why I got to Ryan Franklin, I upped it from 100 ERA plus to 120, to 120 ERA plus to try to get truly good seasons. Franklin in 2003 in Seattle, which is a pitcher's park, seems like pretty good. However, none of these seemed all that. None of them seemed much better than Pat Mahomes. So I, I just kept lowering the innings, basically, until I found something interesting. And um, what that got me was Dan Straley. And I like Dan Straley because it was Oakland, which is a pitcher's park. It was 2012, which was a pitcher's year. He had a... 3.89 ERA, which was a 101 ERA plus, so he was above average as a starter, and he had a 6.48 FIP, mm. and so that's I think seven, uh, six and a, almost six and a half times, and uh, he struck out 32, walked 16 in 39 innings, which is not actually not that bad, but he allowed 11 home runs. I like that because 11 home runs are just you can't. You can't like you can walk a bunch of guys and not have them score. You can not strike anybody out, but have a bunch of ground balls or line drives hit to your infielders. But a home run is a home run. There's nothing imaginary about a home run. He allowed those home runs. He yeah. allowed a home run every three innings. That is Hunter Strickland esque. And still managed an ERA of three point eight nine. So that's good. So then I lowered the innings some more. I went down to. 10 innings just to see how extreme I could get. And I lowered, I raised it from 0.06 as a multiplier to 0.09. And there's only one. And uh, his name is Robert Manuel. Do you know who Robert Manuel is? Nope. Robert Manuel pitched in 2010. Yeah. I know that. Is it Phillies? No. No. Uh, He pitched for the Reds in 2009. For four innings, he pitched for the Red Sox in 2010 for 11 innings. Mm. He was in between traded for Vladimir Ballantine, mm-hmm. who is a friend of the show, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> uh, How about that? And then, so the Mariners traded for him and then put him on waivers, and the Red Sox claimed him. And uh, he allowed in 13 innings uh, for the Red Sox, he allowed. Five home runs. He allowed six runs. So already, you know you're dealing with something pretty impressive. Five home runs, six runs, 
uh, five strikeouts and seven walks. So in 13 innings, he walked more than he struck out. He allowed as many home runs as he struck out. He also allowed five other hits in between and somehow only allowed six runs. And uh, none of them unearned either. I thought that this might be an, a case of unearned, but there were no unearns. So Robert Manuel, six foot three, 205 pounds from Bel Air, Texas, signed as an undrafted free agent. Uh, and ha- it, as it turns out, the undrafted was wise. The signed was not. Robert Manuel has the most lucky season in Major League history. I feel confident saying. Hmm. I was thinking of Robert Person. Oh, yeah, sure. Robert Person. Well, he was. He's, Robert Person was a big deal. Yeah, Phillies pitcher. Um, okay, so Robert Manuel, luckiest pitcher ever, and yet didn't help him all that much. Robert Person. Still don't know his name. Robert Person, least helpful surname ever. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Bob Person. Mr. Person. Okay, so that is the play index segment for this week. We urge you to subscribe using the coupon code BP to get the coupon to get the discounted price of thirty dollars on a one-year subscription. Uh, we will wrap up just with a couple quick ones here. This one is from Simon in London, who says, "As there is increasing talk of having a London-based NFL franchise, what are your thoughts on the future potential of having an MLB team outside of the U.S. and Canada?" Do you think it could be viable? Which current team would you pick to make such a move? And what city would you select to move to if you were bankrolling this transition? So the obvious obstacle is is baseball's schedule and the flight time. This is something yeah. that works pretty well in football because you play once a week. And, and even then, as I learned on Hang Up and Listen, you get a bye week, right? If you if you are the team that plays in London that week. So on one side, you don't get a buy on the other side. Right, right, right. Yeah. So there's just no way that this would really work with baseball's schedule under the, I mean, with, with the transportation options that we currently have. Well, I mean, I, that is the huge obstacle. That is probably the obstacle. And, but I mean, it, it could theoretically, it could work in Europe, right? Cause Europe is only how far to, how long does it take you to fly to London? Like six hours from where you are? Yeah, five, I think. Yeah, so it's five hours from New York to San Francisco. I mean, it would be ten from San Francisco to to to, to London. So it would be hard. It would it would definitely put pressure on the schedule because you probably couldn't have a team go from the West Coast to London straight away. But if you did it right and you had them stop in New York for a series or whatever, mm-hmm. it's conceivable. But nobody plays baseball in London. They play baseball in Japan, which is twelve hours away from the West Coast uh, and even further from the East Coast. Um, and they play baseball in Australia, which is, I think, like like 19 hours from the West Coast. Mm. And where else do they play baseball? I get they kind of well, play baseball about... in Israel a little. But so then the answer is Mexico City, though. Right. I mean, it, yes. It would be Mexico City. The population is there. The mm. money isn't there. Probably you mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to charge an average ticket price of fifty five dollars for a fifty five thousand seat stadium. If it were in Mexico City, I assume. I don't know if that's true, but I assume. But, you know, it's 30 million people and a flight time that's not too bad. It would be, I assume, the the longest travel for any major league team if there was a team in Mexico City, but not by that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what, what I would have said. And if you're picking a team, I guess it would be whatever team has the 
the least uh, enthusiastic or large fan base or attendance, just like the the Expos used to play some home games in Puerto Rico. So you'd, you'd want to have it be, I don't know, the Rays or something like that, some, some well, team that, or Oakland or I don't know. I guess I was going to say the, the Yankees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it seems seems seem like maybe the Yankees would be good. I don't know. I mean, they probably would be pretty popular in Mexico. I like the idea of moving the Yankees to Mexico because Yankee specifically refers to a American in most of the world. Particularly, <laughs> it refers to an American. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to put the Yankees in Mexico uh, would be fun. Mm-hmm. All right. And lastly, this is one of those good questions that the questioner answers very well himself and so we might not have all that much to add but i will ask if you disagree with anything this is from john pretend for a moment that you are allowed to choose four current mlb franchises to reside in the same division as your team for the next 30 years you have the liberty to realign your favorite team's division however you may wish with no changes for that time period which four teams would you want in your division and why this is hugely important because winning the division gets you straight through to the LDS. I am an Indians fan, and the four franchises I would franchises I would feel best about being in a division with for the next 30 years would be, in no particular order, San Diego, Colorado, Minnesota, and Milwaukee. And he says that in his honorable mention are Miami and Arizona. Is there a dark horse in this race that he is missing? Well, do you think that there's any... Do you think there's a loss, though, in having boring teams as your rivals? I mean, I, maybe, maybe it isn't. Maybe a division makes four exciting games no matter what. Maybe if those teams were your division rivals, your fans would be really excited to see you play the Padres if you were the Cleveland Indians. But it seems possible that it would just be a lot of boring games. And, like, the Giants sell out every game against the Dodgers. There's got to be value in having that. Well, I guess the Giants sell out every game. But even back when they didn't, they sold a ton of tickets against the Dodgers. So it seems like there would be some value to having interesting teams as well. It seems like there would be some value to having uh, teams that were not long travel destinations as well. Um, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, winning the division is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. But I think if I were choosing, I might, I don't, my, uh, my the entertainment side of me might win out, and I might actually pick the teams that I would want to play for various interesting reasons. So if that were the Giants, I might say that I would most want to play the A's, the Dodgers, the Mariners, and the Cubs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well that that's one that's one approach. I I don't know. Um, I would guess that eventually whatever team was in your division would become a rival and eventually one of those teams would be pretty decent at some point so it's not like they would all be awful every year and if you were a lock for the playoffs every year i'm sure that would be pretty beneficial in terms of season tickets and attendance and revenue not to mention home games in the postseason all of that so i don't know i don't i don't know how that works out but if we Stick with the premise of John's question. Do you disagree if we're looking for the least competitive teams over a 30-year span? Obviously, we have, we have picked Milwaukee before as the, yeah. the number well, I would, one. No, I would pick Milwaukee. I would pick Colorado. I would, put, mm-hmm. uh, I would pick Cleveland, and I would pick San Diego. And Minnesota makes sense, too, I suppose. 
A little bit. Not as much to me. They, I mean, it's I, I, Minnesota's roughly mid-sized market. I mean, they've been they've been a cheap at, for a long time because their owners notably cheap among owners. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think that their fundamentals are as bad as some of the other teams. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think someone could correct me on that, but I don't think their fundamentals are that bad. One might pick Cleveland if John. I did. If, I just if, did. If, uh, yeah, if John were not an Indians fan himself. Yeah, but I'm. I don't. Mm-hmm. I. I am neither an Indians fan nor a John fan. <laughs> I'm a That's John fan. I like John. I like John too. Yeah. Okay. All right. So no real quibbles with his picks. So that is it for today. We encourage you to join the Facebook group, join the discussion, as people say, on the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. I will give one plug now to the Effectively Wild listener website that is starting. I think it's starting next week or maybe the week after the winter meeting. So there are people who have banded together in our Facebook group to create their own site, which will be... Uh, populated with writers for every team. It's a very ambitious plan. I look forward to seeing what they do with it. It's going to be called Banished to the Pen. It also has its own Facebook group, which you can find through our Facebook group. So go check that out if you're interested in writing or emailing or or editing for them or contributing in some way. And support our podcast on iTunes by rating and reviewing and subscribing to the show. And send us some emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. We will be back later this week.